coming to you in Super Mario Nation. Yes, it's the Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hello and welcome. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. And welcome to this week's glorious episode of the Film File. Yes, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. It's its second week of 2023. And as ever, it's me and Andy. How are you, Andy? <laughs> I'm a bit croaky, but I've popped some painkillers, so it shouldn't really affect the recording that much. But I've got me a drink to the side to keep myself hydrated. Uh, hopefully, we're not going to be as bit, shall we say, wappy as we were last week. I think because we recorded late in the day, we were both of like that hyperactive mood last week. And... <laughs> It was a fun edit. I enjoyed the edit because I'd, I'd forgotten how many tangents we went off on and how bizarre the conversation got at times. And those who stick around for the um, little bits at the end of the outtakes will have just got a sample of some of the nonsense that we were spewing <laughs> for no reason at all. I think it was. I think it was that uh, coming back. It's like the first it was day the back excitement, school, wasn't it? it? Was the giddiness of you know <laughs> you're showing your new haircut off and uh, the, your best annual that you got at Christmas. It was almost that. I've shown my new tash off this week. It's yeah, like... it looks good. I was I, I meant to uh, comment on the tash when I saw you the other day, and uh, it's looking lockdown tash is back. Looking fine. I'm trying to think of which film character it reminded me of. Well, it was great at the staff party because we had the uh, staff Christmas party this past week. I said that we were going to it when we were on last week's show. What a great night. Oh, good. I did me. It's basically a handlebar moustache. Yeah. When I was wearing this with a t-shirt, a Hawaiian shirt and my beanie hat, I looked like a bad undercover cop from a 1970s crime drama. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be the cop, though, who was, uh, who seemed to be working with the hero, but ultimately... (laughs) Uh, is on the wrong side of the law. I'll, I'll I'll end up dying towards the end, but that's in order to thrust the hero in order to wear... Eckhart in, in Batman. That's me. That's me. Yeah. I'm Eckhart. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it was a great night. Uh, there was a really good turnout from all the team. And we'd booked the Boom Battle Bar, which is downstairs from where the cinema is. We got like a, two lanes of darts for ourselves for all night which it's those virtual darts where there's loads of little mini games like Eliminator and stuff like that. So much fun. We had a couple of pool tables, but we also had, and this was where I spent up my whole night, the karaoke room to ourselves. Oh, really? I wish I I could have come. I enjoy a good karaoke. I was supposed to go to that, uh, not to your party, but to to that venue. (laughs) I was supposed to gate crash your party. (laughs) I I didn't my diary. Must gate crash. Uh, Didn't get around (laughs) to it. Gate crash next year's instead. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind doing the axe throwing. Um, on the night, I could have actually done the axe throwing because I was, I'm was i the only person who doesn't drink and you can't do the axe throwing if you've had alcohol. But I was too busy uh, belting out tune after tune after tune. No one wanted to go into the karaoke room until I just went, you know what, I'm going to I'm gonna break in there and have a go. Went in there, did a rendition of Ice Ice Baby, which one of the guys recorded and then posted onto the team page. Within minutes, a flood of team members flooding in, all starting to like add things into the queue and like, great night. It was yeah, it's, it's that, that thing, isn't it? It's that uh, that one person having to get the whole thing going before, you know, before it, it, it jumps, everyone jumps in. They need that that little bit of, yeah, that guy's doing it. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I'll do it. So the, the boss the next day was like saying, oh, yeah, everyone looked like they were having fun with karaoke, but it, it didn't start, like people didn't jump in there straight away. And he just said like, oh, it's one of those things that you need to have a few drinks in you before you get the courage to get up. And I was like, well, I think I've just, completely disproven that given I don't drink and I was the first person in there. So a uh, fun night and a funny night. It's it's great being a non-drinker and watching people getting mm. more and more gradually drunk 
is hilarious. Well, I, I don't get drunk anymore. I hardly drink. I, and that was a COVID thing for me, that after COVID, I completely, completely lost the taste for, for alcohol. And I, I've never been a never been a huge drinker at yeah. the best of times, but I, uh, nowadays, I, I just, just don't even like the taste of it. I had one member of the team who was convinced that my surname was McFarlane. Okay. And when I corrected them, I went, no, it's not. And <laughs> said, like, it's Meekin. I got the, are you sure? It was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty convinced those, what my name is. I had one other member of the team who kept calling me Steve. As we're in the karaoke room and I'm belting something else, like, go on, Steve. Go on. I just turned around, I'm like, who the is Steve? <laughs> <laughs> no idea what was going on, but it, that's a drunken night out and it was just a great laugh. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, I've had a pretty, pretty quiet week back to rehearsing. Uh, I'm working on a screenplay at the moment, so that's taking up a lot of mindset. Trying to get my tax return done. Oh, I love doing Oh, my it's that tax return. time of year, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we look forward as ever to delivering the film file. And speaking of looking forward. Yes. Well, that was going to be the segue. Yeah. Looking forward. We asked last week as part of our uh, Mastodon challenge, our new version of our Twitter challenge. See what we did. About what films are you looking forward to in 2023? And, and Andy and I are kind of, I've kind of mentioned some of the stuff. Got Ant-Man and Wasp, Quantumania. We've got Volume 3 of Guardians of the Galaxy, John Wick. So, so many. But you know what we want? What do you want? We've had a, a handful of responses. Uh, Ozzy, Ozzy at Mastodon World said, I'm, I'm vibrating with anticipation Ooh. for Infinity Pool. Possessor was such an incredible film, and this one looks similarly insane and well-designed. Vibrating with anticipation. I yeah, like, I like that. that. Missing the sequel to Searching is apparently coming out this year, which they expect to be awesome. And also, Wes Anderson's new film, Asteroid City, is coming too. It's with going that. to be a good year. John, who's UK film nerd at Mastodon.me.uk. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. After yep. that trailer, We're my in. expectations are way too high. I did comments as like, uh, you know, I don't want to get excited for it, but I agree after that trailer, I'm completely in. I'm sold on it, even though I've been stung before. But it appears that John didn't get stung because John replied to that with, I recently recently watched Crystal Skull in 4K and think it gets better every time. It has a new colour grading, which helps a bit. But I think its main problem is that some of the shots, especially in the jungle, look too green screeny. And yeah. That was one of my issues with it. I've got a lot more issues with it than you have, John, but I'm glad that you enjoy it. Yeah, I'm always glad when I don't like something, but someone gets some enjoyment from it because it shows that all film is for everyone. Indeed, yes. Carl gave us Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, oh, Ant-Man yeah. and the Wasp Quantumania, and, and this is on our radar, isn't it? Cocaine Bear. Yeah, it looks, it looks <laughs> insane. It really does look insane. And also... Other regular listener who's had a few mentions and always gets giddy every time that I mention him. Stephen. Hi, Stephen. We will get round to doing a lovely bone zone on a deep dive eventually. <laughs> we, we have been talking about this for nearly two years now. So, Stephen, just just keep holding. It's it's that sense of anticipation, Stephen. One week it will drop and you'll go. It'll be the week that you don't tune in. He said, hey, guys. So my main films I'm looking forward to and are not limited to are The Flash, Dune yeah. Part 2, Indy 5, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, John Wick 4, Ant-Man 3, and Dungeons and & Dragons. Cool. I, I can't really argue with any of them because I'm so excited for all of them. Um, I could throw in quite a few more. Um, in February, there's Knock at the Cabin. Now, I know Shyamalan films are very hit or miss, but I always appreciate them, even if they don't quite hit the mark, because he's doing low budget and doing his own ideas. So I'm looking forward to that one. I'm also looking forward to Puss in Boots. That looks great. Yeah, the word's been great on that, hasn't it? Yeah, critics have loved it, and the public have uh, given it a round thumbs up um, from, from it. Apparently, the animation is just really slick. It's very bad guys-ish. 
8 a.m. Oh, the start finally of animation. caught that on your recommendation, by the way. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a good bit of fun, isn't it? Good, good bit of heist-related fun. Uh, March sees Creed 3, uh, Scream 6, and Pearl. We've waited, like, it's been six months since Pearl came out in the US, but I've waited and waited rather than importing it in, and I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing that on the big screen. Uh, Renfield, we've already said for April. Let's not forget we're talking about June 2, which we can't wait for. Yep. Uh, we've not mentioned Aquaman, even though I was not a big fan of Aquaman. I know you you enjoyed it. Yep, that's, that's going to round off the year with potentially the Ghostbusters sequel, but... It seems though they've not even started filming yet. I'm not convinced that's going to stick the landing for December this year. But we've also got the new Wonka finally arriving in December with Timothy Chalamet. It's Chalamet's year because he's got June in November and uh, Wonka in December. So we can just give him the end of the year. Yeah, the guy's on a roll. There's the Exorcist spin-off in October that we don't know a huge amount about. I'm intrigued with. Give it a chance. We'll always give it a chance. And obviously, and we've not mentioned it for at least a week, there's Barbie. Yes. (laughs) Barbie in July. Oppenheimer. We didn't didn't mention Oppenheimer. Well, well. July itself has Mission Impossible 7, Oppenheimer, Barbie and the Marvels. That's a great month. This is going to be a solid year for films. After last year's rather... I mean, there were some great films last year, but it was quite vacant during the summer. It wasn't a busy summer. This year is absolutely packed and stacked and you know we've only touched on a handful of the films obviously they'll end up being the, all the smaller films that just come in under the radar and they're usually the ones that end up in our top list for the year look at last year at the start of the year i would not have mentioned the menu barbarian smile as and being, to be honest and, we wouldn't have mentioned top gun no and then it got to the end of the year and the ones that we we hadn't even thought of in the january were the ones that were the top films of the year. So uh, let's uh, let's see what this year brings us. Well, talking of anticipation, you and I are, as of this recording, highly, highly stoked for The Last of Us, which opens today as of this recording in the US on HBO Max and tomorrow, uh, Monday the 16th in, in the UK on Sky Atlantic. Yeah, we'll be able to feedback what we think about that next week, uh, but really, really am excited for it. I can't think of a TV show I have been so excited about since what One Division. Yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. Reviews have been great across the board. People have been uh, saying very good things about it. So, yeah, can't wait for that. Oh, you know what we forgot to mention for the films coming up? What's that? Craven the Hunter. Yeah, we forgot <laughs> to mention that. Um, anyway, so this week's Mastodon Challenge is, well, it's the start of of the award season. Uh, We're going to be talking about the Golden Globes in the news, but if you were to pick your best film of 2022 to be in your own personal award ceremony, what's that film going to be? Are you going to follow what the announcements have been so far for this year's crop of nominees for other award ceremonies, or are you going to go left of centre? What are your award choices for your own personal award ceremony let us know on mastodon and we will read out your answers next week so what have we got for you on this week's show well as ever we'll be giving you the news and the box office we are going to be doing a deep dive into robert rodriguez's desperado we've got reviews aplenty as andy and i will be talking to you about how do you pronounce this megan memthrigan I don't know. M3 Gan. <laughs> Megan, the new the new horror film from Blumhouse. Um, I've also got reviews of Empire of Light, which was a film that was, let's be honest, it was clearly tailored for me. And documentary Retrograde, which landed on Disney Plus in the UK this past week. All this and the usual chat stuff and nonsense. But now it's time for the news. 
So as ever, let's start the news by looking at the box office. And clearly still dominating is Avatar The Way of Water. However, Megan has opened in the UK. It opened big, but didn't knock Avatar from its top position. Uh, how are we looking for Megan this week? So retaining its top spot again in the box office in the US, Avatar Way of Water scraped in another $32.4 million this weekend. Megan held on to the second place with another $18.3 million added to his total. Puss in Boots still clawing in some money, $14.4 million. Very good word of mouth on this film is ensuring that it retains week on week. Really decent box office. Man Called Otto took $12.8 million, putting it into fourth place. And new entry, Plane, the Gerard Butler action thriller, opened in fifth place with $10.3 million. In the UK, again, Avatar Way of Water took another $4.2 million this weekend, taking it to $63.5 million for the UK market. Megan opened strongly in second place with $2.4 million. Whitney Houston, I Wanna Dance With Somebody, in third place, taking another $1.1 million, taking it up to $8.2 million after three weeks. Empire of Light took 965000 this weekend, putting it into fourth place. And Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical took another 855000 this weekend. It's up to $25 million from the UK market. Worldwide, Avatar is now up to $1.9 billion. So that $2 billion target that Cameron spoke about is well and truly within reach. Whilst Megan, the low-budget horror film, which cost about $12 million to make, is now on a worldwide total of $94 million. So last year, it got a lot of publicity for all the wrong reasons, and that was last year's Golden Globes, and, and rightly so. But this year, amends, well, have attempted to be to be made. I didn't get a chance to see in it. Andy, fill me in on the winners, losers, and did the Golden Globes manage to redeem itself? Um, I didn't get round to watching it myself. I've caught all the highlights and read through the list of winners and losers. From reports, it didn't pull back the viewing figures. But I do still think that the Globes, being that it's the first significant one of the award season is important and it's a shame to see that last year it caused so many problems and controversies that it kind of damaged and tainted it but this year it looks like a, a return to predictability shall i say for golden globes okay. best motion picture drama i mean it was always going to be the fablemans it had to Looking be the fablemans it. it does look great but it looks like it's the pure awards friendly it's all about the love of cinema and growing up and because you know it's steven spielberg's early life in a fictionalized setting um, it was up against films like avatar way of water which was never going to get best motion picture drama elvis tar and top gun maverick let's be honest avatar and top gun maverick are going to be in a lot of categories in a lot of awards coming up, but they're not the kind of thing that the awards tend to lean for as the winners. So it's nice that they get a mention in there, but there's no way that they're going to be the best. Motion picture, musical or comedy? This was a surprise, because I thought Everything Everywhere All at Once or, or Glass Onion would be the most likely ones here, but Banshees of Inner Shirin. Well, as a, as a comedy, I guess the... the... Well, it's not as a musical. <laughs> well, not as a musical. It's always kind of interesting how they categorise the films so they do win awards. They're always a little bit vague, I would side with the Golden Globes. Yeah, Babylon and Triangle of Sadness were also in the running there. Babylon, which is clearly a please put us in as many categories as possible kind of film, hasn't quite struck well with audiences or critics in the US. We get to see it next week, hopefully. Looking forward to seeing it. I mean, for anything that's drawing that much attention for the amount of controversy that's connected to it, then it's it's worth the time and worth the yeah. price of admission just to find out what that is. And we're huge fans of the director. Absolutely. Director for motion picture, again, Spielberg with The Fablemans, of course. 
it was it was a shoe in. Um, it's a shame because everything everywhere all at once by Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert would have been my personal pick. But I've not seen the Fablemans yet, so I can't really comment. Yeah. Screenplay motion picture, Banshees of Inisherin, Martin McDonough. Which we love, as you know. Great screenplay. It balances so many different nuances perfectly. It's depressing. It's comical. To me, it's genuinely one of the funniest films that I saw last year, even though it's it's quite a serious it's look not at a comedy. mental illness. No, it's it, it's a great film from start to finish. And it's the dialogue. The dialogue is so natural and perfect, as you expect from McDonough. Um, it was up against films such as Tar, The Fablemans, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and Women Talking. Actor in a motion picture, Austin Butler for Elvis. Okay, well, it was a great performance. Everyone's money was on Brendan Frazier for The Whale. That's got a lot of kickback, though, hasn't it? Yeah. We've not we've not seen in the UK yet. It comes out in a month's time. But, you know, he got, he got the 15-minute standing ovation when it was shown at festivals. Other ones in that category were Hugh Jackman for The Sun, Bill Naive for Living, which I've heard is a really good performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerry Pope for The Inspection. Actress in a motion picture drama. Kate Blanchett wins for Tar. This was this was the bookie's favourite. Yeah. Olivia Coleman, Empire of Light, was in the running. Viola Davis for The Woman King, Anna Diarmas for Blonde, and Michelle Williams for Fablemans. But Kate Blanchett is the standout performance within that category. Actor in a motion picture, musical or comedy. Again, Banshees of Inner Sheeran. Big winner on the day at Banshees. Colin Farrell wins for that one. And actress in a musical or comedy, Michelle Yeoh for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Yeah, she plays yeah. so many vari- variations on the same character to perfection. She's so good. Uh, actor in supporting role, Ki Hu Kwan from Everything Everywhere. Actress in a supporting role in motion picture, Angela Bassett for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Interesting. She was very good. Up against Kerry Condon for Banshees of Inisherin, Jamie Lee Curtis for Everything Everywhere All at Once, Dolly DeLeon for Triangle of Sadness, and Carrie Mulligan for She Said. So there was some strong names within there, but yeah, she was so good at showcasing grief, angst, family drama, emotion, and everything in a superhero comic book movie. Yeah. Look forward to seeing it again. I, I will go back to it. It was such a personal feeling film. Uh, motion picture, non-English language. This is a category I've got my eye on for all the awards coming up because there's some strong contenders in here. And whilst I'm championing things like RRR, which if you're still not watched it, genuinely find the time and watch it. And All Quiet on the Western Front. I need to see, and it's on Amazon, so I've got it down on my list for this week, so I'll review it next week. The winner of this category, which is Argentina 1985. I don't know it, Andy. I read up on it. It's based on the true story about a public prosecutor, a young lawyer, and the inexperienced legal team dared to prosecute the heads of Argentina's bloody military dictatorship back in 1985. Very positive reviewed. It's 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. So it's been on Amazon Prime for a few weeks now, but I've not got a chance to watch it. Now that it's getting some awards nods, and this is what the awards are about, and this is why the Globes is important, because it starts this season. I'm now more interested to watch it. And we will see films that are being mentioned in the awards start to do better at the cinema as a result. Yeah. I'll get that watched and we'll get it reviewed for next week's show. Okay. Original score for motion picture. Babylon got the score. Justin Hurwitz's score for that one. Manages to tick all the boxes that the other ones in the category, John Williams with The Fablemans, Carter Burwell for Banshees of Inisherin, Women Talking, and Del Toro's Pinocchio. Decent scores. Not heard the Babylon score yet. Hopefully will do by the time we watch the film next week. You know it's going to be good. Yeah. Original song for motion picture. RRR gets a win at last. Natu Natu from RRR wins. And boy, is that a great track. (laughs) So uh, well deserved. Motion picture animated. Del Toro's Pinocchio. It's my pick. I mean, it was up against Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Never seen it. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Not seen it yet. Does look good. Turning Red, we've both got love for. Yeah. And Inuo 
which I've not seen. But Pinocchio is such a passion project of stop motion that, yeah, I think it's a deserved win. And then we get the television awards. House of Dragon was the best drama. Okay. Musical or comedy, Abbott Elementary. Limited series or motion picture made for television, The White Lotus. Yeah, Actor in a television series, Kevin Costner for Yellowstone. Never watched. Actress in a television series or drama, Zendaya for Euphoria. Not watched. Actor in a television musical or comedy. Now this, yeah, fully behind it. Jeremy Allen White for The Burr. I've still not got around to it yet. Oh, it's on the list. Absolutely brilliant. And it's been greenlit for season two and I can't wait. Uh, season two is going to be... 10 episodes instead of what was planned for eight. So there's going to be even more to love. And it drops this summer. Actress in a television series, musical or comedy, Quinta Brunson, Abbott Elementary. Actor in a supporting role, Tyler James Williams from Abbott Elementary. Abbott Elementary is doing a lot of good things. Yeah, I've heard good things about it. I don't know where it is. I don't know where you can find it in the UK. Probably not at the moment. Actress in a supporting role, Julia Garner from Ozark. Actor in an anthology series or motion picture for TV, Evan Peters for Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Actress in limited series, Amanda Seyfried for The Dropout. Actor in a supporting role for limited series, Paul Walter Hauser, Blackbird. I'm, I'm pleased to see Paul Walter Hauser get some recognition. He's always someone who really stands out in everything that he does, but he's never really managed to get the recognition for what he brings. Actress in a supporting role in limited series, Jennifer Coolidge for The White Lotus. So out of all that, let's be honest, we're both now more excited about Abbott Elementary than we've ever thought we would be. I, I, I know it's about a school. I know it's uh, kind of autobiographical by the writer. That's about it quite far behind on so much stuff, including that. Uh, I mean, it's always a good indicator, the Golden Globes, as to how the voting process may go when it comes to uh, the Oscars. And clearly the Oscars are always the big one. So all of these things now kind of feed into each other. It becomes a bit of a, an ongoing feeding frenzy to, um, to kind of guess what's going to be the big ones. So other news outside of the Golden Globes. Linked into it, we've got the Producers Guild of America announcing their nominations for their film and TV categories, which their awards show will air at the end of February. Now, the PGA is seen as the best predictor for the Best Picture nominations at the Oscars. The 10 nominees for the Outstanding Producer of Theatrical Motion Pictures this year. So don't be surprised if these end up on the final rundown of the Oscars Best for Pictures. Avatar, Way of Water, Banshees of Inner Sheeran, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Glass Onion, Tar, Top Gun Maverick and The Whale. You know, if last week you'd have asked me to write down what I think the PGA are going to pick out as the top 10 films for the year, I think I probably would have put them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're looking at... um... Everything all at once. You're looking at the Fablemans, uh, Banshees. I think they're the clear, clear winners for that one. We'll, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. So we'll be doing our Oscar prediction show in about a month and a half's time, just before the actual awards ceremony itself. Jumping into other news, there's been some casting news on a film that both Andy and I are, well, it's highly anticipated because we're just big Dirty Great Ape fans. And that's West Ball's Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. And William H. Macy has joined the cast who he will be playing at this stage, we do not know. We're very excited for this because we both loved the more recent trilogy. In fact, we both loved pretty much the whole series, as yeah. we discussed yeah, on a show's drive last year. Macy, who most recently has made prominence in Showtime's Shameless TV series, has joined the team which has Owen Teague, Freya Allen and Peter Mascon. Wes Ball's Kingdom of the Planets of the Apes for 20th Century Studios is set to pick up many years after the conclusion of Matt Reeves' War for the 
Planet of the Apes in 2017, and it will continue that continuity that began with 2011's Rise of the Planet of the Apes reboot. Specifics of his role under wraps, we'll, f- we'll hopefully hear something more in the coming weeks or months. Yeah, is it uh, an ape he's playing? Is it a human? We just don't know at this moment in time. But uh, as Andy said, we are so looking forward to it. Now, bad news came this past couple of days that Snowpiercer Season 4, even though it's been filmed already, has been scrapped by TNT. Has it? I've done one of those. Yes. Um, Now, this is believed to be another part of the continuing cost-cutting by Warner Brothers Discovery, because TNT is part of their chain. It's left the show's production company shipping it around the final season, because they'd already got told that the fourth season was going to be their last one. They've now got an almost finished production that they've got nowhere to go for. So they're shipping it around other services to see if anyone wants to pick it up. Whether someone will pick it up just for the rights to one season is a bit doubtful. It has happened before. It's it's, it's not unusual. The the best chance here is Netflix because Netflix have the international distribution, including the UK. So they've already got the rights to the first three seasons. And as we've seen Netflix in the past, when they did the same with Lucifer and picked it up for one final season, they actually went, you know what? If you don't want this to be your final one, we'll give you another two mm. seasons. Yeah, they also did the same with Manifest, which got cancelled, I think, at the end of season three, two or three. Uh, Netflix reached out uh, and it's been a big success there. So it, it is possible. It's not unusual. I know you're a big fan of it, so you, fingers crossed for you. I mean, I'd just be happy just to get this final season four to wrap up all the story and tie up all the loose ends i'm not bothered for finding a service that will then give it more and more seasons to potentially weaken it by stretching it out too much it feels like it only needs one more season so hopefully come on netflix come to the rescue do a good deed let us have season four of snowpiercer Ezra Miller has pleaded guilty to misdemeanor unlawful trespass in the Vermont burglary case on Friday. Miller's accepted a plea deal to avoid jail time and has to pay a $500 fine and face one year of probation. And part of the plea deal, 30-year-old Miller agrees to 41 conditions, which include things such as no drinking, random drug tests, and a commitment to continue seeking mental health treatment. Let's hope that gives them the opportunity to straighten out their lives because they're a talented individual who Mm. deserves success but keep doing ridiculous things in their private life. The thing which gets me, all the people who've turned on them and are saying they should get cancelled and never let them work again, did these people feel the same way about Oliver Reed's behaviours through alcoholism? Mm. Or any rock stars that have had drug and drink problems and done crazy escapades? No one doubles down on must cancel them, must cancel them, must cancel them. Well, it's to do with the superhero stuff, isn't it, at, at the end yeah. of the day, let's be honest. That, that's it. It's the geek culture brings out the worst in people. Miller shows such great potential on screen, right from early roles. And it'd be a shame for someone's career to be absolutely destroyed because of a problem with depression and alcoholism. So hopefully, hopefully this will turn their life around. Let's see. We don't know. We still don't know yet whether Miller's interpretation of The Flash will see any success after the next film or whether that will be the end of it. But we do know that Warner Brothers doors are now slightly ajar. I'm not going to say open. I'm going to say slightly ajar with the chain on the latch. 
So in similar kind of news, Rick and Morty co-creator Justin Roiland is apparently facing felony domestic violence charges, but it's not all what it seems. So the complaint was originally filed in 2020. Uh, the 42-year-old was charged with one felony count of domestic battery with corporal injury and one felony count of false imprisonment by menacing violence. Performer pleaded not guilty back in October 2020 and appeared the other day in a pre-trial hearing why this news has suddenly started doing the round, so to speak. So to be clear, not only is Justin innocent in a in a statement that went out to the press, we also have every expectation that this matter is on course to be dismissed once the district attorney's office has completed its methodical review of the evidence uh, and everyone is looking forward to clearing Justin's name. So we don't know what's going to happen. It's still very early days. Roiland has not been convicted of any crimes and no trial date has been set. So Rick and Morty season six wrapped up in December 2022. Uh, season seven is on its way, as is the hugely popular uh, solar opposites. And it's all about legal issues this week. And now we have the curious case of Michael Bay and the dead pigeon. Which I think I read, <laughs> but I remember Tintin being in it. The rap broke the news this week that a charge has been brought against Bay in Italy for, well, the death of a home in pigeon while directing the film Six Underground. Bay has categorically denied the allegations. In a statement, he said, I'm a well-known animal lover, a major animal activist. No animal involved in the production was injured or harmed or on any other production I've worked on in the past 30 years. Apparently, pigeons are a protected species in Italy. It's illegal to harm, kill or capture any, any wild bird, including pigeons. I was not aware of that fact. All these little things that you discover. <laughs> no, and this is a film show, folks. This is what you <laughs> learn about the world. Apparently, a homing pigeon was allegedly killed by a dolly in the middle of a take in Rome during the shooting of Six Underground. I was harmed by watching Six Underground. <laughs> My senses were bashed. Does that, I don't does think that you can actually take legal action on that okay. one. Uh, but Bay refutes all the claims, saying that they've got clear video evidence, multitude of witnesses and safety officers that exonerate them. And Bay's attorney, now Bay's attorney hasn't helped things because the legalese <laughs> that they've used suggests that something maybe did happen. Bay's attorney's own words, concerns whether in his capacity as the film's director, Mr. Bay failed to properly supervise crew members whom he did not even have the ability to hire responsible for handling the animals on the set. So that kind of suggests to me that well, maybe one of the crew did actually injure this bird. Uh, but Mr. Bay had nothing to do with it. And he, he didn't even hire them in the first place. Don't blame him. Don't blame him. Oh, no, I've just admitted that something happened. <laughs> Why Bay's saying nothing happened at all is attorney is muddying the waters. I'm not sure this is going to go anywhere. This will probably end up just being a payout to just move it along rather than dragging it out. Because Bay's, you know, he's, he's got projects lined up to ruin. I mean, he's got projects <laughs> lined up to a film. So he's not going to want to get tied down in legal drama. Uh, but whether or not he killed that pigeon... Maybe he can make a film about that. The, probably. The boom will hit the boom will hit it and explode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll see it from 12 angles. Uh, you and I are both big fans of Shane Black. We've talked about Shane Black's work a bunch of times here on the show. And he is now moving, as a lot of people seem to be, into television. He's teaming up with Greg Nicotaro, who you'll know as one of the leading lights of The Walking Dead. And the pair are going to work with Brian Wharton to develop a series 
based on John R. Maxim's Paul Bannerman novels. Now, I know nothing about the Paul Bannerman novels, but it sounds right up Shane Black Street. I've heard of these novels before now and never got round to reading them. So I'm now adding them onto my Audible playlist uh, just to get a bit more depth into there. It's basically a load of government contracted agents who decide to retire in a small town and take regular day jobs to just try to be normal people, but they end up being hunted down by other operatives who don't want them potentially disclosing any trade internal trade secrets. I mean, it sounds like The Prisoner meets Man from Uncle. Yeah, meets Lethal Weapon. Yeah, like you say, it's right, stuff like this is right up Shane Black's alley. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's Shane Black. Uh, if you're interested in the books... There are five titles in the Paul Bannerman series so far. And as you said, Andy, I might just give it a go on Audible. I do have a credit eating. Eating away at your pockets. Eating away, and I don't know what to get it. Sticking with the adaptations from books, and it's something that's kind of been adapted before, but it only really adapted one of the books and a few of the a few elements of the interlinked ones. Writer and producer Jason Ning, who gave us Lucifer and The Expanse, has signed a deal with Sony Pictures Television and is reportedly working on a TV series adaptation of the whole lot of the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon series really? of interlinked novels. Uh, Wang Dulu's Crane Iron Pentology. Published between 1938 and 1944, the books chronicle the struggles of four generations of ancient Chinese warrior folk heroes and consist of, in chronological order, Crane Startles Kunlun, Precious Sword Golden Herpin, Sword Force Pearl Shine, then we have Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon as the fourth book, and Iron Knight Silver Vase. We've spoken about Crouching Tiger as one of our deep dives last year. Uh, we spoke about our love of that kind of whoopsie martial arts approach. Sony distributed the original film and recently regained the rights to the property through first look deal it had with Vertigo and are very keen to get this greenlit and into production as soon as possible. Hey, Andy. Hey, Lee. Did you know there is a Roadhouse remake in the works? I'd heard something about that. Well, the first uh, images appeared uh, this week on the internet of Jake Gyllenhaal in the role made famous by Patrick Swayze. This fell below our radar, the fact that it is directed by action director Doug Lynham, who is known for the first Bourne movie. He also directed the fantastic Tom Cruise movie, Edge of Tomorrow. But yeah, the fact that it's uh, it's gone quite unnoticed uh, seems to be a thing. Uh, we've talked about other remakes that are happening and coming to fruition over this year. But yeah, folks, there's going to be a Roadhouse remake. We'll keep our eye on that one now that it's uh, apparently already gone in production and uh, it's, it's out there shooting. Being filmed yeah. behind our back. How dare they not tell us? Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania trailer. Oh, yes. You were trying not to see it, if I, uh, yes. if I remember correctly. And then you, you gave in, and there it was in all of its glory. What did you think? Man, there's so much in that trailer. Um, so I, I didn't want to watch the trailer because I'm already in on this film anyway, and the tease trailer that we've already had was enough for me. Yeah. But within a few hours of it landing and me saying, I don't need to watch this. There's images of it popping up on my feeds on social media. And it's like, well, I may as well watch it because anything that could be spoilerific in there is going to be in my line of vision anyway. Now, I have confidence in Feige and the, the gang in putting trailers together that there's nothing in there that is actually integral to the story. They're masters of subterfuge. We know that. They are. Yeah, uh, it looks great. And the Marvel Studios VP of Production and Development, Stephen Broussard, says that it's far more than just an Ant-Man film on a bigger scale. And I can kind of see that. This is the start of Phase 5 of the MCU, and this is the yeah. full introduction of Kang the Conqueror, who's going to be a rather unique and very different villain than what Thanos was over this phase. 
it looks absolutely visually jaw-dropping but also packed with so much that trailer alone is one that i feel that i could just pause it at multiple points and be pointing out loads of things in a fanboyish kind of nerdish way it's like oh that's that that's referencing that that's it looks so jam-packed i just hope that it doesn't feel bloated i can't tell you what i think the the, the story is other than we know <laughs> they go into the quantum realm and it looks accidental but you said there's so much subterfuge i've seen online people saying this is the end of scott lang who knows but uh, bruce Hard is also comparing this film to films such as captain america the winter soldier um, in which you saw the, the fall of shield and in his words it felt like the entirety of the mcu turned on that Captain America Civil War was another film where you saw the heroes divided into camps and battle lines being drawn. It felt like the future of the MCU was going to be defined by the action of that film. We really like the idea of making this Ant-Man film as important and integral to the MCU going forward. Because the Ant-Man films have kind of been, they've been disposable. They've been light. They've been fun, um, but they've not felt like they're an essential part of the MCU. But they now want Ant-Man to feel like what happens in his world impacts the MCU overall. But we'll wait and see. We've got a month to wait. Is that all? 17th of February. That's the date to mark down. Noah Hawley's long-awaited Alien series will begin shooting later this year. FX Network's chairman, John Langraff, has said that Noah is currently in production on the fifth season of Fargo, but he's in active pre-production on Alien. He's written the scripts. He's meeting with production designer in Austin this weekend, gearing up for production this year after he completes the fifth season of Fargo. So not long to wait. Also keeping in mind that uh, Fede Alvarez's big screen version of Alien is also in production as casting has begun on that, as we mentioned a few weeks ago. And starting filming this week is Agatha Coven of Chaos. Over at Marvel, directors and supporting cast have been revealed when we get to see this show, a spin-off from WandaVision. I'm guessing either later this year or early next year. But we do know that Catherine Hahn is returning. Oh, yes. I've caught, I mean, it wouldn't be Agatha without uh, Catherine Hahn coming back and delighting us. Paramount Plus has also handed out an eight-episode straight-to-series order for a TV series based on the Dungeons & Dragons tabletop game. Yes, the same Dungeons & Dragons that has got a movie coming out in just under two months is also getting a TV series with filmmaker Rawson Marshall Thurber, who penned Red Notice, penning the pilot script and set to direct the first episode. The plan is to slowly build up a whole Dungeons & Dragons connected universe, spanning multiple scripted and unscripted shows. Unscripted shows interests me. Yeah. Does that mean we're just going to get like a, a filming of people playing an actual Dungeons & Dragons game <laughs> that's, that's around the table? Is. We might be thinking too much into it. No, nope, I'd watch that. I genuinely watched that. <laughs> uh, I've seen a few of them over the years. I mean, uh, Will Wheaton with his tabletop, he did a few role-playing episodes. And I found it interesting to see people playing games the same way that I play them. Right. But I'm a huge Dungeons & Dragons fan. I'm in for this. More D&D on the screen, big and small. I'm all over it. And let's just finish off just by mentioning that we said last week when we were talking about Avatar that the sequels could be much cheaper. Turns out we were right. Yeah, we're about to be. We're good at this now. <laughs> Appearing on a podcast this week, Cameron has basically said that the films could get less expensive to produce because plenty of costs which were sunk into the first film can be repurposed not just for the rest of the sequels, but for other films for Disney and 20th Century Studios. If we develop something for Avatar, usually that's in the form of an asset, like a creature or a setting that exists digitally. So it sits on the server. The studio can reap the benefits of not having to recreate that over time. So the movies kind of have an economy of scale over the greater arc. That's part of the argument for doing three or four films kind of back to back. 
such asset building also stretches to sets. We know that Cameron loves to build huge sets and he created a huge water tank in Manhattan Beach, 120 foot by 60 foot by 30 foot. Wow. Um, to film shots for the way of watering. That can be used again going right. forwards. So as we we said last week, this film might have cost like 250 to 350 million. But you know what? The next one could cost 150 million because everything's already there. Yeah, the cast of the cast are probably done by now. It's it's going to be pickups. And it, as we said, yep. it's not like shooting a regular movie where you set up your lights and then you do a take and then you're happy with the take. You then take your shoot from a, a, a another angle. You, you don't do that in in these kinds of movies. It's more closer to animation than it is uh, anything else. Yeah. And that, folks, is this week's the news. <laughs> You're listening to The Film File, your favourite film podcast literally anywhere. And if you've not subscribed to the show, then really, why not? We insist that you do and insist that you tell all your friends about The Film File. The more listeners we get, the much more we can do. And if you've not subscribed, how do you do it? Quite simply, head over to your favourite podcast platform and search for The Film File. Remember to leave a like and remember to subscribe because you'll get access to bonus episodes and much, much more. If you want to know more about The Film File, then there are several routes you can take to learn about this little old podcast. Head over to social media platforms, search for Film File UK. You'll find us there, particularly on Mastodon, which has become a home away from home. Or you can get in touch with us. Ask us any questions about anything. We don't care. Preferably film-related. Any films, TV shows, anything on your horizon, anything you want us to talk about, any different thoughts on what we discuss, send us an email, podcast at filmfile.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Also, if you listen to us via Spotify, you'll notice that the Mastodon Challenge questions appear on the episode description there, and you can answer them via Spotify. Yes, such is the magic of modern technology. We're living in a whole new world. It's amazing. It's amazing. You can also listen to us on the radio. Join us on No Barriers Radio. That's nobarriersradio.com every Thursday at 8 o'clock for even more film file goodness. It's now time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. In this week's Deep Dive, we're going to be looking at the 1995 American neo-Western film produced, directed, and probably cleaned the sets by Robert Rodriguez. Second part of his Mexico trilogy stars Antonio Banderas as the El Mariachi, who seeks revenge on the drug lord who killed his lover. They call him a loner. I know who you are. Really? You kill drug dealers. They kill the woman I love. You ruined my life. They called him a miss. You've heard stories of that man that carries a guitar case full of weapons. Find him and kill him. I hope you don't think you can take someone like Ucho all by yourself. Really? They made the mistake of calling his bluff. Is there something in the guitar case? My guitar? Now, it's time to face the music. Let's play. Whilst this was initially planned just as a look at Desperado, you can't talk about that film without mentioning El Mariachi, as the pair are intrinsically linked. Originally intended for the Mexican home video market, El Mariachi's production was only $7,225, but it was liked so much by studio execs for Columbia that they then channeled a further $200,000 to transfer the print to film, 
remix the sound and polish up the end result before marketing and releasing it. And it took two million at the box office, making a name for the up and comer Rodriguez, which the director famously revealed where he got the money to fund that initial 7,225. He sold his body to science. El Mariachi was one of those films that entered into legend because the way that it, a, it was funded, secondly, that it was shot basically as a piece of uh, guerrilla filmmaking with a mainly amateur cast in the northern Mexican border town of Huidad Hakuna in Cojila. The success of the film led Rodriguez to create two other sequels, Desperado and Once Upon a Time in Mexico, uh, with Antonio Banderas taking over from the original actor, Carlos Gallardo, though Gallardo co-produced both films and had a minor role. In Desperado. Such was the visual style of Rodriguez that it set Hollywood alight. And in fact, this idea that you can just go out and make a movie uh, in 14 days with a budget of $7,000 is absolutely incredible. And it led to this excitement following on from Quentin Tarantino that the film geeks were taking over. The film El Mariachi starts off with the mistaken identity trope. A ruthless criminal carries his weapons in a guitar case, resulting in a travelling mariachi becoming targeted by local gangs who think that he's this killer. And he gets embroiled in underworld bosses trying to have him assassinated. And it leads to a tragic loss of the woman that he loves at the end of the film. And Desperado then picks up to then have this mariachi who's now turned a no- into a notorious killer. And his, his reputation precedes him. Thanks to the character of Buscemi, played by Steve Buscemi, Buscemi, who goes ahead of him to each town to tell how the previous town that he's just run from, this biggest Mexican that was always cast in shadows, was killing everyone and massacring people left, right and centre. So the reputation is building up this fear of the mariachi coming through. But he is quite um, handy with a gun, as it turns out, although not as uh, menacing as... Buscemi's own embellishments would suggest. But now he's on a revenge streak because he wants to get back to find Buccio and take him out. And it's that basic plotline that just allows Rodriguez to use as a guerrilla filmmaking with, again, a low budget. It was seven million to make Desperado. And this is a film that looks like at least for the time, a 30 million budget film. Because Rodriguez and every one of his DVDs, he's had like a guerrilla filmmaking masterclass section on there. He always finds ways to cut costs. I mean, you look at Eddie Rodriguez's film, it usually has shot, chopped and scored by Robert Rodriguez because he does everything himself. He doesn't hire full crews. A lot of the cast who are involved in the film will help with crew-related projects. I mean, on El Mariachi, he had zero film crew. He didn't hire anyone as crew. It was literally all the actors were helping with everything, setups, lighting. The lighting in El Mariachi, he used 200-watt desk lamps instead of professional lighting. And yet he makes them look good. He's got a way of using low budgets. If anything, Rodriguez over the years, as his budgets have got higher, that's when his films have got weaker, in my opinion. And I think Desperado, for me, is the pinnacle of what he can deliver with a low budget. He's got an incredible kinetic visual flair. And as you said, 
based on the necessity to how are you going to get the shot done he will figure out a way to make that action sequence work without grandiose effects work i mean even in his his other work like like spy kids he built studios in mexico to keep the cost down he always figured out a way of trying to do it as cheaply as possible yeah there's not much in the way of story to this there's lots and lots of amazing action sequence but i think why the film worked as well as it does was antonio banderas and he just proved yes. to be such a charismatic lead and this is quite early on in banderas's uh, foray into american filmmaking and this is i think one of those times probably for me this and zorro which capture his charm absolutely perfectly yeah. this film placed him on the western audience's map completely he's got a cool charisma but he also plays the tortured aspect of the musician turned killer he doesn't want to kill he really wants music is his true passion his true love but he's been thrust into this yeah Bashemi actually says to him at one point you need to get out because this will become all that you get once you've killed him what then you'll then move on to other killings and he plays that tortured angst really well and coupled with um, the rather sizzling Salma Hayek who really made a mark on the screen uh, outing wasn't it yeah the two of them alongside the stylized action that Rodriguez had honed makes for a film that looks cool throughout at least until that moment that you realize that Rodriguez only had three or four stuntmen and then you start to notice the same person being killed multiple times in each scene kind of breaks the illusion slightly but you know what I'll let him off with it because it kept the budget down. It's great because there's some there's one of the bar killing scenes. The same stunt man you see him wearing a baseball cap with a plaid shirt and he gets killed. Then all of a sudden he's just got a t-shirt on and he's got a, a mustache and he gets killed. And he's like, either he's got loads of brothers <laughs> or there's some cost cutting going on here. But it doesn't stop the enjoyment. In, instead, it adds another sense of tropish fun because that's the thing is you know how I've got that card game, the uh, tropes of films, yeah. movie tropes card game that you could just deal out decks. Guaranteed, if you deal out the action deck in random things, you'll score a perfect 10 out of 10 every time you watch these films because they are just playing on every trope and every cliche of the action genre. You've got the coolly walking away from explosions in slow motion. You've got over-the-top weaponry. You've got weaponry in guitar cases. You've got the particularly silly one when he's joined by his two old friends and one of them has a rocket launcher in a guitar case. But it's a lightweight action fest where style is higher than substance. And I love it. I love the cast. I love the support cast. This is the only film that Tarantino appears on screen in that he's actually good. <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> never going to be renowned for his acting skills. I mean, they are big, silly action set pieces, low on plot, but out of out of all of them, I think this is, this is the strongest. Now, I've got a lot of love for El Mariachi just due to yeah. the guerrilla uh, filmmaking. And and I've got to point out, uh, if you're a, a burgeoning filmmaker, you have to read Rodriguez's book, Rebel Without a Crew, because the insight of how he got he got the film going is is as, as interesting as the film itself. I, I wasn't a big fan of the third part of the trilogy, Once Upon a Time in Mexico. No. It lost Felt track. Felt very modelled. It didn't know what it wanted to do. Uh, clearly, there was more money on offer. And uh, Johnny Depp's in it. And Johnny Depp's all over the place in this. But I don't think that's down to him. I think it's down to the fact that the entire script is completely all over the place. But for me, this is Rodrigo at his best. And this, and from Dust Till Dawn, are showing Robert Rodriguez doing what he does 
best kinetic action sequences, flashy ideas that he, he somehow manages to not only visualize, but put before a lens. And I, I think the, that is his strength. And as you mentioned or alluded to earlier, Andy, once he started getting into bigger budget stuff, we started to lose that flair that made it work so much. We also need to mention with this film that even though he popped up on a few acting roles before this, this was the film that really brought Rodriguez's second cousin, Dranny Trejo, to audiences' attention. Yes, of course. And over the years, we've come to love him more and more thanks to his, first of all, his work on every Rodriguez film, but his growing into this like hardened, machete-esque character that he plays no matter what he's in. And he's he's just a great standout actor. And this is someone who had spent time inside. He 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 had a quite a criminal past. So it's great to see someone manage to redeem themselves and become something a bit more than what they used to be through you know a second cousin saying, "Do you want to be in my film?" and uh, throw some knives around in a silent way. Uh, Danny Trejo steals for the very short time he's in this film. Everyone remembers him, and he's only on screen for about three minutes in total. And of course, he went on to 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 play Machete in in two films based on the idea of <laughs> of the Grindhouse that he did with Tarantino. Yeah, um, yeah he's had a, he's had an interesting career, Robert Rodriguez. Um, I quite like the Faculty. Couldn't yeah. get into any of the Spy Kids films, but they weren't aimed at me. Of course, I think one of the pinnacles of his work was Sin City. You you talked about uh, Attila Battle Angel, but there's not been much that's shown that spark for action throughout all of the films he's done. He's he's apparently in production with a new film called Hypnotic. I would like to see Rodriguez get back to his roots and and deliver something with the energy and of course he's much older now but with the energy that he did in some of his earlier films where you felt he was taking chances i mean i thought he took chances with uh, sin city that were which changed sort of comic book filmmaking to a, a, a huge degree we have got to look forward to if we're still alive though robert rodriguez's 100 years with john malkovic which releases on november the 18th 2115 so if we're all around at that point <laughs> we can watch it this is his experimental film um advertised with the tagline the movie you will never see which is a short film that as rodriguez stated in 2019 i was making several short films for them and i finished that one first and we shot that one first and i thought that was going to be a commercial or something then i showed them the movie and he said yeah that's great that's great that's the one we lock away and i said what the one that you lock away what about the other one with the future I said no that's the commercial genuinely a film that is finished it's ready and it's not getting released until 2115. It's part of the 100, 100 years. Okay. Well, I, uh, I will have to put it You can't get more that. experimental than that, can you? No. <laughs> Desperado is, for me, the pinnacle of Rodriguez. And it's also the reason that I love Robert Rodriguez, because that was the film that really introduced me to what he was capable of. I've stuck with him ever since. And I go back to Desperado very frequently. If you want to catch Desperado, Andy, where can we find it? It's currently on Sky Movies, worth tracking down on there. It regularly rotates into Netflix. I've seen it pop up on there a few times over the years. But personally, I say just go out and buy yourself the box set of the three films together. You can pick it up quite cheap, either on DVD or Blu-ray. Well worth watching, particularly for El Mariachi and Desperado. We'll have another deep dive for you next week. So, time for this week's reviews. And Andy and I both had the chance to sit in a darkened cinema together to bring you our review of Megan, or otherwise known as M. Thregan. I still don't know which works best. This is Megan. She's designed to protect Katie from ever feeling lonely. Perfection. Crazy. It's insane, right? 
she's more than just a toy. She's part of the family. I won't let anything harm you. Run. Well, it's a toy. I'm sure it's not that complicated. Oh, really? What's going on? Did you hurt someone? God, I hope not. How could you kill someone? I didn't kill anyone. You did. Megan. So, Megan, however you want to say the title, directed by Jared Johnston. Following the death of her sister and brother-in-law, robotics toy designer Gemma finds herself caring for her traumatized eight-year-old niece, Katie. It's a job that Gemma is not only too happy to outsource as she invents, well, a Frankenstein cum Barbie, a doll that is an AI companion designed to take part in caring duties. It's a decision that comes back to bite her, well, actually attack her with a hammer. Andy, did we love it? Did we enjoy this? This is the latest addition to, well, I guess it's a subgenre, the killer doll genre. Did I love it? No. Did I enjoy it? Yeah. I had fun with it. I had a good bit of fun. It's not scary, is it? No. I've got problems with it. And the problems, well, I'll get to them in a minute. But over when I watched it, I initially thought this is a four-star film. But after sleeping on it, it became a three-and-a-half-star film. It's a film that I had fun with. I laughed at moments when they were supposed to laugh in. I thought that it played on the conventions of the genre that it was emulating quite well. And it had that social commentary aspect that we've said so many times that good horrors and good sci-fi, and this is a horror sci-fi, always have a good social commentary. And this one is all about how parents this day and age, they use tech as babysitters. You give your kid an iPad and just leave them to play on that all day. Why don't I, I've, I can go and do my own thing. And it, it plays on that idea that maybe you shouldn't be doing that because the tech can go wrong. And this tech, in this case, does go wrong. That's the bit I really enjoyed about this was the social commentary. And that's what I think helped elevate the film from just being uh, another sinister doll yeah. stalking and, and, and killing a variety of people. I like the fact that it said something about the current world that we're living in. It said something about the current state of AI and how if it goes unchecked, as Megan starts to, becomes more and more powerful. It, it's not particularly scary. It's, it's very, very knowing. It's kind of a bit horror light. It's fun. It's got a lot of energy to it. The, the design of Megan is excellent and ties into the sort of um, uh, the pleasing of the TikTok generation. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's um, thought there was more to think about than there was to be scared by. Uh, well, one of my issues with this film is we know that it was trimmed down in the US to get the PG-13 rating, which still ended up as a 15 rating in the UK. We know that it's cut. And even if I didn't know that going in, you can tell that it's been cut. Because it clearly wasn't intended to be a PG-13 film. Otherwise, some of the deaths would have been structured in a slightly different way that they can show things off screen without it feeling jarring. Here, it you can see blatantly where there's just gone, take out 30 seconds there, take out 10 yeah. seconds there. And it cuts away too suddenly and too jarringly after teasing something a bit more brutal. And that's one of the problems is like if you're going to make an R-rated film, Release it as an R-rated film. It only costs twelve million to make. It's not like you're not going to make your money back. And I know the PG-13 has worked out great box office-wise for them, but you've diminished your end product in doing so. And it it just felt lightweight. Like I say, it was fun. It was breezy. It didn't outstay its welcome. I think it paced along really well. It's very predictable. Very early in the film, you can call exactly what will happen in the end scenes. Yeah, foreshadows it. The foreshadowing is so ham-fistedly done. But that's not a problem in films like this because 
yeah, th there's no real originality out there. It's hard to get something original. Every now and then a Barbarian will come along. But even Barbarian was original because it played the tropes and then twisted them half like at certain points. This film sticks to the tropes really well. I just want to see that uncut version. I want to see what it was supposed to be. Yeah. I also have a slight problem with some of the writing. We, we are informed early on that the skeleton structure of the Megan unit is titanium. Now, titanium weighs three times that of a bone material. So a titanium skeleton will be extremely heavy. We're talking like 200, 240 to 250 kilos. And yet a young boy manages to pick her up like a rag doll and run with her through a forest. No way. No way. Don't go saying something's titanium unless you've actually researched it because that just bugs geeks like me. I think you've got to point out that performances are really good. Yes. Uh, Violet McCraw, who plays uh, KD, the uh, recently orphaned niece of uh, Gemma, played by Alison Williams, is, is uh, quite rightly unlikable for the most half of the uh, most parts of the film who only bonds with her robot best friend Megan uh, but I did think Alison Williams, who you remember from Get Out, did that awkward job of being uh, not only Frankenstein creator but also um, she was a geek and there were aspects within the script where I kind of recognized things that she was talking about uh, especially when she, she talks about collectibles and things like that. The design of Megan is is very, very strong, partly played by an actress for sort of long shots and moving shots, but the close-ups are all animatronics and that kind of works in its favour. And, and it gives a sort of Megan's eye rolls and quicker sides that little bit much more kind of uh, malevolence to them mm. than if it had all been sort of CGI, for instance. Generally, there's, there's not much to dislike about it. It's silly. It fits into the mould of uh, Killer Creepy Doll quite well. And But just like you, Andy, I'd like to have seen the scary version because this isn't scary. Uh, and of course, this film has entered into sort of fable by the sort of the pickup on the TikTok dance sequence, for instance, and the way that that has created a life of its own for Megan. It's not very often that I that I agree with one certain critic from The Guardian, but um, I'm not going to name him because I think it's unfair to name him. But when it was referred to in their review as a cheekily enjoyable chiller, I thought to myself, yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. Yeah, It's fun. I do think that with how it looks on the screen at the moment... I think they probably could have got away with a 12A, to be honest with you, yeah, on the yeah. BBFC rating. I think this is one of those films that, because it had been trimmed down to make it a more family-friendly for the US, I think this is one of those films that shows that the BBFC maybe on their next review of what their ratings things are, they could be a little bit more lenient on these kind of horrors. Had it been the uncut version, yes, obviously a higher rating would be needed. But on this, when it comes out on home release, any of your kids who are under 18, under 15, who you think, you know what, they quite like horrors and quite like scary movies, let them watch this. It's a good bit of fun. I'm sure there will be a release somewhere down the line of the much bloodier cut. Yes. Andy, what else have you got for us? On the same day that I watched Megan, I started my day with the film that I've been looking forward to immersing myself into for a while, and that is... Empire of Light. Look around you. This old place is for people who want to escape. The world is changing. Wow. It really was beautiful. Yes, it is. You can't just give up. Don't let them tell you what you can or can't do. Here's to the future. Here's to getting back up. Happy New Year! And here's to coming home. 
focusing on the lives of those who work within a cinema in 1980, particularly Hillary, played by Olivia Coleman, a duty manager who struggles with mental health issues, and her connection to new employee Stephen, played by Michael Ward, a black British young man who's trying to find his place in life. Sam Mendes' latest offering is a poignant tribute to the majesty of cinema and the lives of those who inhabit it. Having spent over two decades working within the cinema industry, it is clear to see that this is a film that was made for people like me. Right from the early moments with the cinema team going about their day-to-day routines, discussing things they found in screens, and generally getting on with things, I was captivated. Seeing a lot of familiarity and some genuine truths which I could relate to made it easy for me to connect with each and every one of the personalities on screen. Therefore, once the film got to the meat of the tale, covering issues such as mental illness, racism, and a love that pushes on despite the issues that threaten it, it was easy for me to get caught up. Of course, having such solid central performances from Coleman and Ward certainly helps, and having it all so meticulously framed and planned as we've come to adore from cinematographer Roger Deakins is just icing on the cake. The support cast are well-placed. Colin Firth plays Creepy as cinema manager Donald Ellis. Tom Brooke is great as Norman, but it's Toby Jones who, despite not having a lot of moments on screen, really stood out to me. As the projectionist introduced as being fiercely protective of his domain in the booth, his musings and insight behind the scenes show a love for presentation that I've encountered with similar projectionists I've known over the years. Through people like that, who are sadly now absent from the majority of cinemas due to the switch to digital, I grew an appreciation for perfect presentation on screen and dedication to delivering the best experience. Seeing echoes of old colleagues within characters such as this made the whole thing so much more real for me. The sad thing is that some of the issues that are present in the film, reflecting the time that it's set, are still sadly seen today. Casual and indeed direct racism towards Stephen by customers, clearly there to tie into the social politics of the 80s. I've witnessed play out similarly within the past decade, almost word for word. As a world, it appears we've still got a long way to go to confront such issues. But in the meantime, the cinema will still be an escape from that world, if only for a brief time, where a magical beam of light will bring wonder to your eyes. And this film well and truly knows this. And lastly, your review for this week is... Retrograde, a documentary about the months leading up to and during the pulling out of the US forces from Afghanistan. It's strange and confusing time right now. The Americans trained me. And after being committed for so many years, I just don't believe that the Americans are going to retrograde and leave the country. Retrograde is a documentary that focuses on the final nine months of America's war in Afghanistan, the longest conflict that the US has been involved in at two decades. Showing the last American special forces there and their involvement in aiding General Sami Sadat and his troops in defending their country from the Taliban, it covers the events leading up to the US pulling out and the devastating impact on the country that followed, opening eyes to quite a few truths that were maybe missed. The first part of the film shows us the time before Biden announced that the proposal that Trump had instigated to withdraw would go ahead, and we see how the US troops stationed there kept an effective control of the threats with the use of drones and other military hardware to assist the Afghan armies. When the announcement is made, the US fighters know what will happen, and you can see the disbelief in their eyes. They know it's the wrong thing to do, but they must complete the full retrograde, the stripping down of the base of all equipment, paperwork and hardware, etc., 
All papers are burnt. Any tech that won't be transported back is destroyed. And any ammunition or hardware that won't fit on the transports is dismantled and destroyed. All done, even knowing that without it, the Afghan forces will be severely hindered. As the film progresses past the extraction, the increasingly desperate situation for the country is seen through the eyes of General Sami, desperately trying to keep control of his men as the Taliban take back key towns and cities. The absolute horror of the situation as civilians are attempting to flee. We've seen all the news stories. We've seen the live images when it was happening. But to see it put into the context here is eye-opening. As we witness it, the film leaves no doubt that the events that transpired would never have played out that way had the US remained. Retrograde is a powerful and intense look at consequences, whilst also being a rather intimate look at the relationships that build between comrades in arms over the years and what the loss of that relationship really means. I, th- I think you've certainly sold me on that one, Andy. It, it's, it, as you said, it looks incredibly powerful. And uh, I, was, I, I, I saw it come up a couple of times and was kind of wondering what it was about. But now I know that I'm, I'm much more intrigued, much more intrigued to see that. So those are reviews. I'm guessing next week, Andy, we're going to be talking about The Last of Us. But what else can we look forward to hitting our screens, whether it's the big one or the home one this week? Big screen, we'll see Babylon finally arrive. So I'm intending to bring that to the show next week. Now TV and Sky brings us Alice, which sees Kiki Palmer play Alice, who yearns for freedom as an enslaved person on a rural Georgia plantation under its brutal and disturbed owner, Paul, played by Johnny Lee Miller. After a violent clash with Paul, she flees through the neighbourhood woods, and this is where things twist around. Sounds like it's set in the 1800s. The year it's set in is 1973, and she's been kept unaware that bondage and slavery had completely been abolished. No, that sounds intriguing. Looks very fascinating. Netflix, Youngie, a new sci-fi action drama from Hellbound director Yun Sang-ho. And on Disney+, Plus, we've got The Territory, and I've just reviewed it. Get Retrograde Watch while it's on Disney+. And that's about it for this week's Film File. But of course, before we go, we've got to give you our neat things. And if you're a regular listener, you know it's stuff that's excited us, we've enjoyed in some way, and we want to share with you. And Andy, as ever, starts off with his neat thing. I'm going to start off, and I briefly mentioned it last week because it's all landed on BBC iPlayer, and I've now just finished watching all the episodes of season one of Our Flag Means Death. Nearly, nearly started that last night, but that's another story for another day. This is the series that's produced by Taika Waititi. It's created by David Jenkins, and it stars Reese Derby, Ewan Bremner, Joel Fry, Samson K.O., and Taika Waititi himself is in there, along with Rory Kinnear, and a great range of faces and names that you will recognise. And it's loosely based on the actual life of Steed Bonnet, a.k.a. the Gentleman Pirate. It's given a more comical approach than the actual life of Steed Bonnet, although read up on Steed Bonnet because the whole background for him anyway is funny as it is. It's basically a, a wealthy landowner who just decided one day that he wanted to be a pirate and got someone to build him a ship. Pirates didn't get people to build them a pirate ship. They they just hijacked them and took them over. But no, he didn't understand that. He knew nothing about seamanship. He was at risk of being mutinied against multiple times. But he managed to team up with Blackbeard. And that there's parts of this comedy show that are actual actually correct because Blackbeard is a huge focus in it. Yet it's played more like a love story in this approach and Taika Waititi's approach to Blackbeard. It's not the menace that we of the seas that um, the legends would say, but it's so much fun. 
I, I had, I've had a blast watching it. It's not laugh out loud funny at all times, but at the times that it manages to get the comedy right, it is enough to keep you involved and keep you wanting to watch the next episode. When I popped the first episode on, it got to the end of it. And whilst I hadn't fully enjoyed it, there was enough there to make me go, you know what, I'm leaving it to start episode two. And then I was in. Thoroughly enjoyable. All the episodes landed on BBC iPlayer in the past few weeks. It was released on HBO Max last year and a season two has been commissioned. I'm loving this. uh, I mean, I know we didn't have a lot of love overall for what Taika Waititi had done with the last Thor film, but I'm loving the fact that Taika Waititi's got his fingers in so many different pies at the moment and we're getting to enjoy them. There was going to be at one point a big screen version written by the legendary William Goldman, who was going to tell the same story so I, i'm pretty familiar with the story because goldman's script was 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 pure gold of, of course he was the, the genius script writer behind which casting and sundance kid and so it was always one of those that it, it deserved to be made so i um once i discovered it was this was going to be the series uh, and taiki watiti was involved in it i was uh i'm very very interested it nearly started watching it last night but for reasons best uh left out of this we didn't get round to it but uh it's high high on my list maybe even so when we finish recording um mine is a book that i'm currently reading i've not finished but um i thought i'd share it with you it's the 2021 stephen king novel billy summers now started reading this and it wasn't landing for me and then something happens about uh, a third of the way into the book, and I'm suddenly in. This is not one of Stephen King's supernatural stories. This is uh, crime fiction, which he also does really, really well, and, and he's undervalued for his uh, uh, his crime fiction. Billy Summers is the antihero of this. He's a complex individual who is an assassin for hire, doing as what many assassins for hire do, the last job. He's a complex character. He's basically he's a good guy who's doing a bad job. Uh, as a killer for hire, he's brought into a small town where he has to go undercover until he gets to assassinate his mark. Uh, and in doing so, he goes undercover in a very Stephen King way. He becomes a writer. Uh, and so there's lots of talk about what the writing journey is and how, uh, as a writer, that you dig deep into your own life and, and expunge the the ghosts and the the demons that follow you and king's done this with his own addiction issues in in many of his books and that's for me where the book has suddenly become interesting as i said i've not finished it it's compelling i don't know where it's going to grow i can guess that it's going to get bloody but it's just great to read something that is so tightly wound that shows you a very different take on sort of the, the lone wolf assassin great book bound to become adapted in some ways into, as Stephen King's books always do, J.J. Uh, Abrams is on board to produce a, a limited series of it. But if you get a chance, read the book. It's well, well worth it, as most Stephen King usually is. And that, folks, well, that's us for this week. We're done, and of course, we'll be back for more next week. Andy, any plans for the upcoming week? As it's award season, I'm starting to get ready for the Oscars. You know, I like to watch as many of the Oscar-nominated films as I can, so I've already started that process. But I'm also tracking back through awards history and filling the gaps in my viewing over the decades. I've been watching quite a few um, films from like the early 1930s over the past couple of weeks, so I've got a few of them lined up this week. Pretty much the same. I'm working on the screenplay at the moment, which is burrowing its way into my... Um 
into my every living day thought patterns, woke up about three o'clock in the morning, figuring out an issue. And that's what I love about writing. And it's strange, as I said, reading this Billy Summers book and seeing the writer's journey on it and, and recognising elements. It doesn't make me want to be an assassin, though. So uh, we'll be back again next week. Stick around. But bless me, Father, for I have killed quite a few men. By Film Geeks. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I'll remix that every week. Album greatest albums go with it. We didn't. I've got to turn into William Shatner. Then we didn't. We know. didn't know what was going on. We knew nothing. <laughs> okay. Um, this fell. Get down to Mikey's Fish and Chip Shop. Just tell them that the film file sent you. Yes, the film file, the film show, for cod freak, <laughs> for cod freaks, <laughs> by cod freaks. Yeah, Head good. round to Panjeb's yeah, Indian to... restaurant. Only five minutes from this theatre. <laughs> yeah. No matter where you are in the country, the time portal takes you there. And now slot in the key order advert. Yeah, it's so orangey for crows. It's just for me and my dog. I'll be, I'll be your, your dog. dog. Oh, there you go. There's a uh, a Mastodon challenge. <laughs> or you could do the um, lip smacking thirst quenching tastes in, in motivating good buzzing cool talking high walking fast living ever giving cool fizzing Pepsi. Very good. <laughs> Very good. That needs to go on the end. <laughs> and if you're enjoying the show, stick around because well, we're not going to stick around because you're going to listen to it even more. Stick it out. Stick around. There's more to come. <laughs> Stick it out. You'll be dead. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I. I'll be waiting for you. <laughs> You're not sending me to the cooler. <laughs> Very good. Off, this is the offcuts. We're longer offcuts than he has a show this week. Um, with all the film news, much more detail, and plenty and plenty of outtakes. <laughs> Subscribe. Or die. Do it. Do it now. We'll do a celebrity one each week. <laughs> just, just drop that in. <laughs> On the radio. <laughs> musical episode. And, and in this week's special musical episode of The Film Wild. Andy will sing all his reviews. <laughs> written by Joss Whedon. Came to the conclusion that um, you, can, you can do anything to the style of It's the End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M. Can you? Yeah, I read out some of the menus at work in the style of that, and it was just perfect. Oh, but yeah, even my notes for Desperado is like, this was initially planned just as a look at Desperado, but you can't talk about that film without mentioning El Mariachi as the pair are intrinsically linked. Oh, God, that, that, <laughs> that drive me insane. <laughs> it's now time for this week's deep dive. So fire up the torpedoes. Torpedoes. <laughs> <laughs> The torpedoes. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a posh version. <laughs>